0: my fellow sojourners on this road of life. Welcome back to the Wayfair podcast. I'm Tom Vanderwell. So glad that you joined us for today's part four of The Beginner's Guide to the Great Story. I hope that you are faring well in your COVID-19 quarantine and stay-at-home orders and all of the, uh, yeah, all of the things that we're all going through together. I hope you uh, are not going crazy yet, and hopefully today's podcast gives you uh, something else to do that is hopefully productive. Uh, at least I'm going to try and make it that way. Uh, the latest on this end, you know, we've been doing okay. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, you know, Wendy and I have uh, been working from home for many, many years. So for us, it is kind of a same old, same old. There are things that we're really enjoying about. Uh, some of the some of the quiet and having a little bit of margin without me traveling all the time for work and some different things to get some things done around the house but we miss our friends isn't that uh, we just do we miss we are very social people we've got a great group of friends that we love to be with uh, all the time and we've been doing the zoom thing yeah doing you know like a little zoom happy hour in the evening with friends or uh, that kind of thing which is fine and it's fun but It's just not the same. And so certainly understand if you are feeling the same way. Uh, We are in the chapter day uh, journey, TomBanderwell.com. We're finishing up tomorrow or on Monday, the Gospel of Mark. And then we'll be moving on to another book. And I'm not sure where I'm going yet. I've been thinking about that and meditating on it. If anybody has any uh, requests or suggestions, i certainly be happy to uh, entertain that. You can always uh, message me on Facebook or uh, Twitter, at uh, Tom Vanderwell, or email me tombanderwell at gmail.com. And we'll just kind of see wherever we're going next. One of the things that I've been doing as I mentioned last time, is I've been going back and actually compiling uh, entire uh, books and all the chapter day posts by book. And if you go to TomVanderwell.com and right up at the top of... The homepage there is uh, there is kind of three photos, uh, and the middle one there is chapter day index by book. If you click on that link, it will take you to a page that basically lists all of the different books that I have uh, compiled thus far. And so you you know if there's a book of the Bible that you are interested in or uh, would like to read through and you know, see what uh, I had to say on each chapter. You just uh, click on the appropriate book. It will take you then to a post. And the way that it works is I basically list the, the featured photo from every post. And you'll see the caption of each photo is uh, the chapter number and title in that particular book. If you just click on the photo uh, for each chapter, it will open up. Uh, to that particular post, so it's a real way to just kind of uh, easy way to kind of go through uh, an entire book and read all of the posts that relate to that particular book. So I've been working on that. That's been one of the the positive things uh, that I've been doing, and I've just added uh, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, Second Corinthians. And just been kind of making my way back chronologically to the books that I went through. So I'm at the beginning of 2019, and we continue to go back to 2018 and so on and so forth, and just continuing to add those books. So that's new, and that's out there. Uh, And as always, free and commercial free. Uh, So feel free to uh, partake uh, as you want and always feel free to share. I have people that will sometimes reach out to me and say, Hey, is it okay that if I share this post uh, on Facebook or share it with some of my friends? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's what, what it's there for. Share as much as you want with whomever you want. And if it can be uh, used in a positive thing, uh, then, then that's great. That's what it's there for. Uh, again, no new messages, uh, kind of in the quarantine thing. Um, the last couple messages are under the messages page or the messages tab uh, on the blog. So you can always go back and listen to or watch uh, on YouTube past messages. And in the meantime, you know, our church, like uh, every other gathering of Jesus followers around the, uh, the United States, is doing the live streaming thing. And so that's, uh, you know, just kind of uh, like everybody else, enjoying the live stream. On Sunday mornings in my pajamas with my cup of coffee and our breakfast. And uh, we'll be doing that probably for the next month or so until, you know, it's a mystery where it's all going to land. All right, so let's get into part four of the Beginner's Guide to the Great Story. Again, the Great Story, basically the metaphor that I use when talking about the Great Story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. We've had three parts. The first part, uh, episode one, we laid the groundwork by talking about the kind of the three foundational themes that I'm going to have as I as I work my way through the Great Story metaphor context and mystery. And then in part two, we talked uh, about decoding and diving into kind of the uh, shallow end, just understanding how the Bible was compiled and why it's put together the way that it is. And we talked about languages and translations and uh, all that stuff that confuses a lot of people, as well as giving some suggestions of where you might want to start if you're new to the whole thing and where you might want to dive into the shallow end uh, to get your feet wet if you were a beginner in the whole thing. And then the last episode, we talked about the meta themes, the overarching themes for the entire great story. We talked about life, death, resurrection. We talked about creation, destruction, new creation, and some of those meta themes that we're going to be seeing as we walk step by step through uh, an overview of the whole thing. Today in part four, we're going to now begin going through the different sections that I outlined in part two, and we're going to be taking it section by section and just kind of giving an overview of each section. This is really hard because even as I've been getting ready to do this episode, I'm just like going, oh man, there is just so much here. And how do I find that balance between giving you an overview and a few nuggets uh, that will be helpful without wading too much into the weed? So the first section, uh, today's episode is going to be the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and these five books together have lots of different names because they're the the oldest books, obviously, and they tell the beginning of the great story. But the five books together make up what uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters would call the Torah uh, or the Law. It's They're also known as the Pentateuch, which just means the first five books. Penta, meaning five. The the five books, they're also known as the books of Moses uh, because tradition holds that Moses was uh, the author of the five books, which is um, most likely not true, but That's kind of what tradition has handed down, and it largely tells the story. uh, At least it ends up with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The last four of the five are really the story of Moses. So we're going to talk about these five books: the Law, the the books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, and this is where the story begins. Now, let me give you the kind of three P words actually four p-words, the problem, the prophetic, the person, and the people. We're going to start with the problem, and then we're going to see how the prophetic immediately begins to foreshadow how God is going to address the problem. Then we realize that the the. the the plan, and that could be another p. you could have five p words. The plan that God has begins with a person and who becomes a people. And that is sort of the the overarching part of the first five books. We'll begin with Genesis, and it could be helpful if you're listening to this and yeah, you know, you're not in a car, you're not uh, moving anywhere to have. Uh, Bible, maybe have it open to the table of contents Uh, we're going to be kind of looking at. You can make some notes maybe uh, in the margins as we go through. So the book of Genesis is kind of the beginning of the story and the first handful of stories in the book of Genesis. Let's first start with kind of the context and the mystery. And I was thinking about this the other day. If you, let's say you were given the task of saying, all right, I want you to tell uh, the story of American history, and you can only do so by briefly sharing five stories. What five stories would you tell? And when you think about that, what? how much would you be leaving out? And it would be sort of mysterious. We've got these 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 short stories that kind of talk about the core pieces of American history. But you would have to leave out so much. And there would be so much that is still left mysterious because it's not uh, comprehensive. It's not exhaustive. At the beginning of the book of Genesis, we kind of have the same thing happening. We've got these handful of stories that present to us the problem, but they also mysteriously represent hundreds, thousands of years of early human civilization, and there is so much we don't know. There are so many references to things that have been lost through time that remain mysterious to us, and that's why we have to be able to embrace mystery if we're ever going to uh, understand and come to embrace the great story. It begins with the creation poem. And the first couple chapters of Genesis are literally a poem. Now, one of the things that we will learn about the Hebrew people, remember we've got a problem and we're going to end up today with a people, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, loved their poetry. And there is so much, uh, especially of what we would call the Old Testament, that is poetry. Now, at the beginning of Genesis, the original Hebrew, this was a poem, the Hebrews loved their poetry, and they had all sorts of different ways to express themselves poetically. And in the creation poem, we uh, you know we understand that God creates the earth. Then all of a sudden, there's a garden. He creates uh, the first human, Adam, and from Adam's rib uh, comes he creates Eve. And so it's kind of interesting. The inter- other interesting thing about the creation poem is that. It was uh, God speaks everything into being until he gets to Adam, and he actually forms Adam from the dust of the earth. And so there is an intimacy as he actually touches, molds, makes uh, humanity. He doesn't just speak Adam into being, and then there's an intimacy in pulling from Adam, a piece of Adam, and creating Eve from that rib that he pulls from Adam, all sorts of, you know, again, mystery there, all sorts of things we could uh, delve into, but that's the beginning. So we've got this garden then, the Garden of Eden, and God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and God, Adam, and Eve are all hanging out together, and so we kind of have a good thing going. And then what happens in the garden is all of a sudden the snake shows up, and it's the here's another mystery. We talk about embracing the mystery. Evil shows up in the form of metaphorically, and we got a metaphor, uh, in in the form of a snake. The other thing though that I think that I look at the context here is that evil existed, but we don't know how. There's a mystery to it, but evil shows up. And evil is a part of the equation. And even as we're thinking about today, as we think about our own lives, we think about our own circumstances, we think about uh, living together in community with other human beings, as we think about uh, international affairs, you can't leave evil out of the equation. Evil was there. We don't know how it got there. We have from, you know, the Bible maybe gives some allusions. There's a mystery to it. We talk about uh, Lucifer and falling from heaven and being thrown from heaven. And there, again, are prophetic poems that allude to this from which we have kind of created a theology around it. But it's still, at this point in the poem, we're, we're not, it's mysterious. We're not sure. But it shows up. And for me, one of the, the, the things in the context of the great story is that evil is always present and there is a struggle between good and evil. Even when you read the Jesus story, you can't escape the fact that Jesus was casting out demons, that, that demon-possessed people, when they saw Jesus, immediately recognized him and the demons uh, even knew exactly who he was and would even urge Jesus you know, to, to have mercy on them. So there is this presence of evil that even Jesus had to grapple with. And evil then in the end of the great story is present. And the, you know, at the climax, the final chapters of Revelation, you have this kind of final battle between good and evil. And all of our stories, aren't they? All of our great stories, all of our good stories are good versus evil. All of our epic stories, there's good versus evil. So in the garden, we have the first... A mention of evil in the form of the snake. Now let's also put this to context, because a lot of people ignore the Old Testament, or they don't. They struggle with the mystery. They don't understand it, and so because the Jesus story is really um, accessible, and the letters in the New Testament that. Were written and distributed that make up the what's called the epistles or the letters in the New Testament. They're kind of prescriptive and they kind of give you, hey, you know, do this, don't do that, and that's easy. Wading into story and mystery from ancient times and the metaphors that gets kind of messy and it's not as accessible, so people will ignore it. But right here at the beginning in the garden story, we have. Um, you know, we have some of the ingredients that become important to the entire story. So let me give you an example. When the snake, when evil tempts Adam and Eve, there is this tree, it's called the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you know, there's fruit all over the garden. You can have fruit, whatever you want to eat. Just don't eat the fruit from this tree. Now the snake tempts Adam and Eve by trying to get them to eat the fruit from the tree, apple is what the metaphor, uh, metaphorical fruit that has come down to us through history and artwork. But we, it doesn't say that it was an apple; it was just a fruit. We don't know what the the fruit particularly was. And here's what the snake said to Adam. He said, "It makes questions. What God said? God didn't really mean that. And you know what? God just is just saying that because if you eat the fruit." He knows that you're going to be like him. It describes Adam and Eve saying, look, it was pleasing to the eye. It was good for food. And it would make them like God. Okay? Pleasing to the eye, good for food, make them like God. In the first uh, letter, of the uh, three epistles of John, first John in the second chapter says, don't love the world or the things of the world. And it describes it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so there's this, the, this three sort of root appetites that are part of the problem. Lust of the eyes, we see things that we want that we can't afford or shouldn't have, but they're pleasing to the eye. We have the lust of the flesh. We have our natural human appetites that we would love to indulge. I have an appetite for rest, but I indulge it, it becomes sloth. I have an appetite for surviving. But then I indulge the appetite, and now it's not just about having enough to survive. It's about me having more and more and more and more and more and more, and and I'm never satisfied. That's an appetite. I have an appetite for food so that I can survive, but I want as much of Wendy's cheesecake. If you've never had Wendy's cheesecake, it's amazing. Uh, As much of Wendy's cheesecake as I can possibly eat until I'm huge and obese and unhealthy. That's an indulgence of appetite That's the the lust of the flesh. And then the pride of life. The snake said, you're going to be like God. And I want to control my own destiny. I want to control my own world. I want to be like God by determining, uh, being uh, self-determining and not only that's not enough, I don't only want to control myself and my destiny and my life, but I want to control everything around me. I want to control Wendy and make sure that she does exactly what I want her to do so that I'm happy. Uh, I want uh, Taylor and Madison to become the um, people that I want them to be, to believe the things that I want them to be so that I will feel comforted and safe. You see what I'm saying? So these three root appetites Uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. They were there in the beginning. Now, the other interesting thing is that when evil shows up to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, this is Matthew chapter four, what does Satan, evil, the snake, uh, resistance, what was Jesus tempted with by the enemy? Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days, and 40 nights. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan says, Hey, take these stones and turn them into bread. In other words, appease your human appetite, appease the lust of your flesh. Then he said, the Satan says, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, which the great story says in this fallen world, uh, on the other side of the garden of Eden, the enemy has been given dominion over it. And so The enemy shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the the world, all of the pleasures, all of the power, all of the wealth, and says, you can have this, you can have it all if you'll just bow down and worship me. That's the lust of the eyes. Look at it all, you could have it all. And then, takes him to the the pinnacle of the temple, corner of the temple, and he says, throw yourself off, and because the Bible says that uh, even your angels will protect you, so throw yourself off and prove to me that you are who you say you are. And what is it? That's pride. I wanna prove to you I am who I say I am. I want to appease my desire to to proudly uh, prove myself uh, in front of my enemy and to my enemy. That's pride of life. So Jesus was faced with the same three temptations that Adam and Eve were in different guise and the same three core appetites that we have. So and it's right there in the beginning. So Adam and Eve eat the fruit, obviously, and they are banished from the. First of all, they're cursed, uh, and their their curses for the snake and for woman and for Adam. Now, what well, the interesting thing is, the here's where the first piece of the prophetic comes in. So we talked about uh, the problem, which is we've got these three root appetites, and we indulge them and become disobedient uh, to the things that we know we shouldn't do. Uh, We do the things we shouldn't do, and we don't do the things that we should do, and that's the problem. And because of that, God says, hey, the snake is going to be cursed, and he says this part of the curse, a couple things prophetically. One, he puts enmity, it says. Uh, He puts hatred, there's a special hatred between evil and evil and the woman, which I find fascinating. Because being um, a male who has been surrounded most of his life by women, and being a father of two daughters, and understanding the struggle of women and seeing it through their own eyes and gathering appreciation for the struggle that women have had um, with misogyny um, in society, the role of women as I've studied it throughout history, There, I really do believe that there is something to that, that there is a, that there is a struggle between evil itself and women. There is a hatred. I think there's a special hatred that women have of evil and of injustice. I think that there's a special hatred that evil has of women. And I believe that, that a lot of misogyny over the years, a lot of the, the problem that women have is rooted in in evil itself. There's also says, hey, the offspring of the woman, he sa- God says to the snake, um, you're going to bruise his heel and he is going to crush your head. And so that's the first prophetic word that kind of in pictures that there's going to be an offspring. There's going to be someone that's going to come born of the woman, evil, snake, Satan. Yeah, you're going to bruise him, but he's going to crush you. Okay, so there's the the first prophetic. Also in the curses is, that's where death enters the equation. Hey, from the dust of the earth, I made you and formed you. He says to Adam, and to dust, you're going to return. From at this point on you, now death enters the equation. Death becomes part of the problem, becomes a consequence of the problem. So they are banished from Eden. Now, after they're banished from Eden, there are a couple more stories. Keep in mind that while these are roughly chronological, these are just a couple of stories that kind of encapsulate and embrace the problem that developed over, who knows, hundreds, thousands of years of human history and development. The first one is Cain and Abel, who are children of Adam and Eve. So we've got these two uh, brothers. One of them brings a sacrifice to God. Now, here's what the other mystery of this. At this point, we don't have the commandments because those come much later with Moses. We don't have any kind of understanding of what how did they how did they know to bring an offering to God? What was prescribed? How did they even know it? Was it something that God told them to do? We we don't we don't know. But both Cain and Abel bring this offering to God. God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Why not? Well, welcome to the mystery. There are all sorts of speculation. You can read endlessly different scholars and what they they have to say, but the reality is we're not really sure. So Cain, upset that God had accepted Abel's offering but not his, kills Abel. That's part of the problem, right? He's envious of Abel. He's angry that Abel's offering was accepted and his was not. So he lashes out in anger. He kills his brother. And when God comes along and says, hey, where's your brother? He says famously, I'm not my brother's keeper. So just like his parents in the garden, they, you know, it's his own way of hiding in shame. You know, Yeah, 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 yeah. He lies about it, obfuscates it, and denies it. Then God basically curses Cain, and he becomes a restless wanderer. Next, we have the story of Noah. This illustrates the problem in that the people in Noah's day, again, Do we have a law? No. Has God given them any kind of commandments? Not that we know of. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no rules from Jesus. There's there's just people living, and humanity is growing and developing. And the problem is, given to themselves, God says, it's sort of like a Lord of the Flies thing. They have become—they've given themselves over to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's become a dog-eat-dog world. It's a world of violence and, uh, injustice. And it's, things are terrible. There's a problem. And so the story of Noah is that God says, Hey, I'm, I'm, this is not going the way that I intended. And it's become so bad that I am going to, I'm going to start from scratch. So back to the theme that we talked about in, in the, uh, earlier episode. Creation, destruction, recreation. So now God says um, the problem has gotten so bad that we're going. I'm going to destroy uh, and start from scratch. So Noah is, builds the ark, gets in the ark with two of every kind of animal. The floods come. Which, by the way, interesting enough, a little bit of historical context. You may not know this, but but Noah and the ark is not the only flood story from antiquity. Many of the ancient cultures had their own flood story. They maybe had a little bit different take on it, different uh, protagonists, different names, but the story of a great destructive flood that destroys the world was not just from the Hebrew people. It Many cultures had their own stories, which to me says, well, something happened. <laughs> so they are... Uh, The the flood comes, rains 40 days and 40 nights. Noah and his family are in the ark with the animals. Then all of a sudden the floods recede. They land on Mount Ararat. And now the rest of humanity comes from Noah and his family, uh, his sons and their wives. And we begin populating the earth all over again. Now, a couple of interesting things from the, the Noah story. Number one, after the flood is over, God makes a covenant with Noah. Now this is the first official covenant that God makes with man. What What's covenant? A covenant is an agreement. And in the ancient times before there was really a set law, covenant was a social way of two people making an agreement that is binding. And there were different ways that it happened. But throughout the great story, God. this is going to be a repetitive theme. God is going to make a covenant with humanity and with certain people. So after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah and his family and with humanity. He says, I'm never going to flood the world and destroy it again. And he puts a rainbow in the sky and says, the rainbow is my, the sign of my covenant that I'm making with you, that it's a promise that I'm not going to destroy the world um, by flood again. So that's the story of how the, the rainbow. And so whenever you see a rainbow, that's a metaphor of uh, God's covenant, uh, that, that he uh, is not going to destroy the world with a flood. Now, the end of the story, there is destruction and recreation, but it's not through a flood. Noah now and his family repopulate the earth. And the next, uh, oh, before that, also context. makes a covenant. Go to the letter of Peter, 1 Peter, in the third chapter. And Peter says that the metaphor of these people, Noah and his family, being saved, there is a death and destruction of the world, but Noah and his family are saved through water. That baptism, the same thing, that in the destruction and death of this world, Jesus said, believe and repent and be baptized. Baptism is a similar metaphor that I am buried under the water in the likeness of Jesus' death through the water and being raised to the likeness of his resurrection that it is again being through the water and then so the next story is the tower of babel and at this point the world has been repopulated there's the 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 humanity has grown um uh, exponentially and there are you know tons of people around how many again how many hundreds thousands of years are encapsulated uh, are in the pause between Noah's story and the tower of Babel that we have no idea that's again, it's a mystery. So keep that in context. We're just talking about a handful of stories that are here to illustrate a specific purpose. And that is the problem. So we had the problem, the Lord of the flies problem, uh, the heinous uh, humanity given to their appetites. We saw the problem in the garden of giving themselves over to the three core appetites. Now in the tower of Babel, people get together and they say, hey, we're going to build this tower to the heavens. And we're going to build this tall tower and so that we can reach the heavens. And what is that? That is the pride of life. Again, we're going to be like God. And they begin growing in technology. And in the Tower of Babel, God says, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Things are progressing way too fast here for the great story. And so we've got to slow things down. This is, uh, we're getting ahead of the plan. So in the story of the Tower of Babel, God separates people groups into different languages. So this is how uh, the great story kind of describes how did people spread out uh, across the world and end up having the, we have these different ethnicities and different people groups, uh, very different uh, colors and genetic makeups. Well, and here's the cool thing. Let's think about context. We know from modern genetics that we all came from the same woman. Uh, Even scientists, uh, genetic scientists call her Genetic Eve. And every one of us on this planet came from the same woman. And that is proven uh, genetically. And so the reality is that we do all the different colors, all the different people groups, came from the same source, but obviously over time developed into and adapted and evolved in very different ethnicities. Well, the Tower of Babel is kind of this um, the story that uh, seeks to kind of say, well, God did that because mankind was developing so fast that he had kind of had to slow things down. And by confusing the people, spreading them out and confusing the languages kind of slowed down the development of the story. What's really cool is uh, you know, and I think the 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 meaning of this particular story, again, we're talking about the problem. The first part of the great story, these stories are all talking about the problem, and where the problem is with humanity, again, it goes back to our pride of life of wanting to be like God. and what what I see even in today's uh, society, in today's headlines. That what we want to decide um, <laughs> for ourselves, uh, make our own lives. Right now, uh, scientists are using stem cells to create human brains from stem cells that have begun emitting brain waves. So we now humanity is creating its own lives. There are uh, from stem cells. Scientists have created what they're calling like these um, robots, basically, that are made from human flesh and human DNA, these little robots that could be used uh, microscopically to do all sorts of tasks. Basically, kind of, it's our own creation. For the first time, mankind has created a, a being that didn't exist before. I find that fascinating. And now with genetic science, again, we're getting to all these gray areas of can we prescribe a human being? Can we grow a human being from a stem cell? Can we take DNA and uh, clone a human being? These are all kind of Tower of Babel type scenarios where we in science and humanity, and the enlightenment uh, technology has grown so quickly and so exponentially that scientists even today are warning that the technology is outpacing our ability to really understand it, morally grapple with it, and figure out um, what what's right and what's wrong. Well, guess what? We're right back to the Tower of Babel, but instead of building a tower with bricks and mortar, we're building it with DNA strands and Cat Five cable. And it, where is it going to end? Fascinating. So I, again, I think that the great story and the, the foreshadowing is has something to say for all of us. So we've got Noah and then Babel. And by the way, the book of Job, which comes later in the Old Testament, it's part of the books of poetry. But Job is an ancient story, and most scholars agree that wherever the, the story of Job probably came from antiquity and the time of uh, post Noah, before Moses, it was probably a story that had been handed down uh, generation from generation orally and uh, is probably much older. But because it's a, again, poem, work of poetry, it was placed with the books of poetry. But the story and the person of Job himself was likely uh, an ancient person during this, this kind of prehistoric time. So these first stories, creation, garden, fall, Cain and Abel, Noah, Babel, and we can throw Job in there, are all presentations of the story, and even Job. The problem that Job presents is, why does bad things happen to good people? And once again, we have evil and good. We have God and the snake, the devil, Satan, evil, resistance, the enemy, uh, the opposition, uh, fighting over Job's soul and his heart. And it's out of that struggle that the bad things happen to Job, and he grapples with all of the bad things that happen to him. So again, it's the presentation of the problem. Original sin, these appetites out of control, the fact that humanity left to itself goes the wrong direction, tries to become like God, and bad things happen to good people in this fallen world. So that's the problem. Now we get to the beginning of the prophetic addressing of the problem. As we said, the plan, so the problem, the plan, the prof- prophetic plan, there's two more P's, starts with a person who becomes a people. And that person is, uh, his name was Abram, later became Abraham. And so we're at the, in Genesis after Babel, now we have Abram. Keep in mind again, Abram and his people, his tribe. Uh, In those days, you stuck with your tribe, you stuck with your people, Uh, your people group. That's how you protected yourself from other people groups. It was a very violent time. It was a very destructive time. Uh, Tribes and people conquering other people just to survive. And so you've got this ancient man named Abram, and he is called out by God. How does he know it's God? God calls him out. Again, part of the mystery. There's so much that we don't know about these ancients, their faith. How did they know? What kind of? What was it that God had revealed to them? Is it was there more to the story than what we know? Probably was, but we are. O- we've only got what we were given, and so we've got Abram, who is called out by God. And says Abram, I want you to leave your people and I am going to lead you to a land that I'm going to show you and he makes Abram a promise I'm going to make a great nation out of you your descendants are going to take some out look at the sky your num- your descendants are going to number as many s- stars as you see in the sky look at the sand of the seashore your descendants are going to be the grains of sand on the seashore so Abram leaves now here's what's kind of interesting about this let's Again, talk about some context. This is the first time we kind of hear of somebody being called out. Now, Noah obviously was called on to build the ark, but Abram was called to follow, and he wasn't told exactly where he's going. This is also a theme of the great story. We see it over and over and over and over again, being called out, being uh, taken on to a journey. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden into what? Into the wilderness that they had to figure out for themselves. Cain after he murdered Abel was became a restless wanderer. Noah and his family that then after the ark landed they had to spread out and begin to populate the earth again. In Babel we've got these different people groups that had been separated and sent out. So we've got these like wilderness people are on a journey with With Abram, God says, I want to, I'm going to lead you someplace. So follow me. So that this is kind of the first story um, uh, of this kind of a journey. Now, Noah had to have faith to build the ark, as he was told. Abram had to have the faith to step out to leave everything behind and believe that God was going to lead him where he was going to go and was going to fulfill the promise of making him a great people. He goes out. There is a promise that he will be the people. The problem is, he goes on this journey and he's going and he's going and he's going and going and he's not having any kids. Now it gets to the point where he's really old and he and Sarah have no children. So, the person, how does the person become a people if you don't have any kids? We now get into the story of his sons. Remember a couple of episodes ago, if you listen to my third part of the time series, I talk about appointed time. And when you're dealing with the prophetic, one of the things that you never want to do is try and make the prophetic happen yourself. That's also sort of a pride thing. It's sort of the pride of life. Well, God has promised me this. I've been prophesied that this is going to happen. So uh, I don't want to wait for God. I'm just going to make it happen myself. When that happens, and I use the example of Shakespeare's Macbeth, uh, bad things happen. Well, here's a classic example from the great story. Abraham and Sarah had not been having any kids. So Sarah says to Abraham, look, we gotta make this thing happen. So I tell you what, you are going to sleep with my maid servant and you're gonna get her pregnant and we're we're going to jumpstart this prophecy thing. So he does uh, sleep with the maidservant. She gets pregnant, and she has a son and names him Ishmael. Lo and behold, after uh, this happens, guess what? Sarah, in her old age, miraculously gets pregnant. Sarah gets pregnant, gives birth to their son, and now it's Isaac. But now we have... Two sons, one by the the servant, uh, the handmaiden, and one by his wife. So Sarah says, "You've got to get rid of your the, my maidservant and uh, her son, and send them away because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deal with this. And I'm, you know, your own son Isaac is going to be the one." So Abraham does that. Context: Abraham is the father of three great world religions. He's the father of Judaism, of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, which then becomes the Christian nation because Jesus was a Jew. So the Christianity came out of uh, Judaism. So we have Judaism and Christianity. Uh, Muslims trace their heritage back through Ishmael to Abraham. So you think about that, the, the Arab peoples are Ishmaelites, the Jewish peoples, the Hebrew people are um, through Isaac, they both go back to Father Abraham. So even the conflicts that we see in our world today between the children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac, it all goes back to one event. And one father. Isn't that fascinating? Now we've got the person and we've got the people. So Abram, Abraham sends Ishmael away. But he says, my people are going to come through you, Abraham, and you, Isaac. So gives birth to Isaac. So now we've got the person and the people are beginning. Isaac has two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first, so he's the first son. So in patriarchal ancient society, the firstborn always gets the blessing. Jacob, and the name Jacob means deceiver, and Jacob was a deceiver. And so Jacob deceives his father and his brother in order to get the blessing that belongs to Esau. So he basically conspires with his mother to get the blessing of the firstborn. So he goes out. And he, Jacob, uh, marries a couple of women and they start having a birthing contest and he has a ton of sons. So now we've got Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has a bunch of sons. Jacob's sons become, well, a couple of his grandsons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So you may have heard that term before, the 12 tribes of Israel. They're all the sons of Jacob. Jacob's youngest son was named Joseph. And Joseph was the youngest, but God comes to Joseph in the dream and says, hey, even though you're the youngest, um, you are basically all of your older brothers are going to bow down to you, which again is another theme that throughout the great story of the least becoming first. And what did Jesus said? If you want to be first, you must become the least. So there's a paradigm here that God is telling again in the context, even of this story. Joseph's the youngest and he's kind of a bratty little brother. So his brothers beat him up, throw him in the bottom of the well, tell his father that he's dead, but then, uh, some, uh, nomadic uh, Arabs come through and they say, hey, let's sell him into slavery and make some money off of him. So they pull him out of the well, sell him into slavery. The um, Arabs take their new slave Joseph to Egypt where he ends up working for um, uh, a guy, getting thrown into prison, being wrongfully accused. He gets uh, out of prison, becomes an administrator to Pharaoh in Egypt and becomes this man of incredible power and prominence. There is a famine back in the homeland of Canaan. And in order to survive this famine, Jacob and his now 10 sons decide, well, we need to go somewhere and get some food. So they go to Egypt. And his brothers are sent as envoys to Pharaoh to ask for some food. And who do they stand before? Their little brother, Joseph, whom they've forgotten because he was just a little kid when they sold him into slavery. They have no idea. So they're reunited. Joseph ends up, his brothers do bow down to him, just as God had prophesied. And he says, bring the family on down here to Egypt. I'll take care of you. We'll feed you. Make sure that you're not harmed by the famine. So that is what happens. Now, uh, Joseph's sons, two sons, become the other two tribes of Israel. So we've got now 12 tribes that are 10 of um. Jacob's sons and two of Joseph's sons become the 12 tribes. They're there in Egypt, but after a while, Joseph dies, his power wanes, and the Egyptian people have these Hebrew people living among them, and they turn them into slaves. And so now we have the, the people who've gone from the person, Abraham, they become 12 tribes living in Egypt, and over a period of of hundreds of years, They are enslaved and they continue to grow and populate until they become almost like this nation. But they're in slavery. That is where we begin the next book, which is Exodus. So Genesis basically is these kind of beginning stories that tell the problem. And then it's the story of the person Abraham becoming a people and the people through his Uh, great-grandchildren becoming these tribes that end up in Egypt and enslaved. All right, so now we've got the book of Exodus. Moses is born, and there's this edict uh, to kill all of the baby uh, Israelites that are enslaved. And so his mother puts him in a basket sends him down the Nile and lo and behold, it's Pharaoh's daughter that finds the basket, decides to raise the baby as her own. So now we have Moses, this Israelite who is being raised as an Egyptian and also the Prince of Egypt. If you've ever seen uh, the animated movie, same story. Uh, Moses grows and um, like a brother to the Pharaoh to be at one point. He finds out who he really is, and when he sees a he's kind of a slave overseer beating one of the Israelite people, uh, Moses comes to his defense, ends up killing the overseer, and because he murdered this person, uh, now there's a price on him, his head, and he would be uh, killed, uh, death penalty, for doing that. So he leaves, flees, and now we have another person that's fleeing into the wilderness. Again, the wilderness... Fleeing is is part of the thing. By the way, Abraham was called out into the wilderness. Isaac spent some time in the wilderness. Jacob spent some time off uh, on his own, hiding from his uh, brother. And so this, this going off in the wilderness is, again, a recurring thing over and over. So Moses goes and he ends up in this distant land of Midian where he gets married. And while he's a shepherd hiding out from his people and the Egyptians... He meets God in this burning bush and God calls Moses out and says, you know, I'm going to free your people and you're going to be the leader. Interesting thing here. Okay, so context, how does this all fit into the, the great story? Great question. Let me give you one example. When he's talking to the burning bush, Moses says, who are you? He's asking God, who are you? God answers out of the burning bush, this is Exodus chapter 3, and he says, "Um, I am that I am. Now, the Hebrew word for that is Yahweh, and in Hebrew, they don't really have vowels, so it's it's four uh, consonants put together, but it's pronounced Yahweh, and it basically means I am. That word, I am, the Yahweh name became holy to the people of Israel. It was the the word that theologians use. It's called the Tetragrammaton, and what it means is um, it's, it's holy, and we don't speak it, we don't utter it. You know how in Harry Potter they say that he who must not be named because we don't want to utter the bad name. Well, it was kind of the same thing. Only it was it's so holy, it's so good, we don't utter the name of God. Yahweh. but we don't use that name. We don't use that where we don't utter the word. So wherever it was then written or said, they would substitute a more generic name like Lord, because it's too holy. In the eighth chapter of John, Jesus is fighting with the religious leaders and the and the teachers of the law, and they are doing their usual thing of being proud and saying, "Hey, we know what we're talking about because we are children of Abraham." And again, Everybody, Abraham's the great father, right? The great patriarch. So they, he, they're telling Jesus that we're from Abraham. Jesus then says, "Before Abraham was, I am." And when you read it in English, you don't know what he's really what he's saying. But what Jesus said there is, "Before Abraham was, Yahweh." He utters the unmentionable holy name of God. And in doing so, he is basically saying, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the God of Abraham. Before Abraham was, I existed. I was there in the beginning. And if you look at it in John chapter 8, immediately after he says that, the teachers of the law pick up their rocks with the intention of stoning him, because what he had uttered, the holy name of God, and in uttering it, he literally claimed that he was God. Context, interesting. If you know the backstory of the name of Yahweh and Moses in the burning bush, then you have a better understanding of why that was such a big deal when Jesus said it to the teachers of the law in John chapter 8. So Moses then goes back to Egypt and frees His people. I'm not going to get into the whole story, the ten plagues. Now all of a sudden we've got the twelve tribes that have become this nation. And scholars say that you know there's lots of debates of how many there were there, but there are some estimates that it's like two million Israelites that left slavery in Egypt, and Moses led them out. You know, even if it's not that many. It was. Uh, it's still an impressive number. It was thousands, hundreds of thousands of people leaving Egypt and now wandering in the desert. What are we again? We're again in the wilderness, going to where God is going to lead us to the promised land. Oh, we've got a recurring theme again. While they're in the wilderness, God gives them the law through Moses. He goes up on the mountain, the, ten, the tablets, like in the Ten Commandments, you know, he comes down that's the giving of the law the book of leviticus okay the book of leviticus is the law it's the ancient code of law that god had given to through moses to his people that's why leviticus is such a hard book kind of understand and such a hard book to read because it's an ancient code code of law book go to the you know go to your your library uh state library and pull out the code of your law code of your state start reading it guarantee you it's uh it's boring reading and kind of the same thing with leviticus it's an ancient book of law That's the book of Leviticus that God gave through Moses. And then Deuteronomy, the the word Deuteronomy means literally like a copy of the law or a second uh, copy, a second telling of the law, a retelling of the law. So Leviticus and Deuteronomy are basically both law books in explaining all the different old commandments that God had of his people, uh, what you do, what you don't do, uh, prescriptions for health, well-being, what you how to live in community with one another. That's why we call the first five books the books of the law, because God had given the law through Moses. A couple things here. The books of the law, the laws of Moses, the Ten Commandments, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, became the foundation of most legal systems in the Western world. Now, there were other law systems in the ancient world, uh, different people groups that had their own types of laws. But the laws of Moses were really what was used to create then what became the, the laws of the various nations in the Western world as time went on. Ah, uh, so it's kind of an interesting fact. A lot of people today, there, you know the Supreme Court will often be find themselves embroiled in fights about whether the Ten Commandments should be uh, in a courthouse and why the Ten Commandments uh, should not be because of the separation of uh, religion and the state. Well, one of the things that's often lost in that debate is the fact that the Ten Commandments and the books of the law, are actually the foundational texts that ultimately became our legal system. So in many cases, it wasn't about uh, ascribing sort of a, this is the religion that everyone must believe, but it was an honoring of this was the ancient law that became the foundation of our legal system. So just kind of a, a context there, which I think is kind of interesting and lost on people. Uh, so we got uh, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy of the copy law in the book of Numbers is um, the story of Moses and all the people wandering in the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years, which again is another theme that we find throughout scripture. 40 is kind of that number of wandering, the the number of pause. Jesus fasted uh, for 40 days before he was tempted. Uh, So 40 years that they were in the wilderness wandering and the first section then ends with the Moses and the people standing on the uh, by the Jordan River and on the other side of the Jordan River is the promised land and so Moses' story ends and that's the end of this first section of the great story where we identify the problem for which God prophetically has a plan that begins with a person in Abraham who will become a people in the tribes of Israel who leave Egypt and are taken to, there's the other P, the promised land. And that's where we're going to leave it today. You know, quarantine, interestingly enough, is kind of highlighting the problem. A fascinating um Wendy and I, and Taylor and Madison, have been Marco Poloing back and forth during this whole time of quarantine. And one of the things that we had discussion about this week as a family is what do we do with all this time in quarantine? We all have ideas of what we should do, things that we could be productive in. And one of the themes that have come up is, hey, you know, the things that I want to do—I've got all these ideas that I should be working on this, and I should be working on this project, and I've got time now to get this organized—but instead, we find ourselves being distracted, uh, giving in to procrastination and resistance, and this is this is just the microcosm uh, of the very problem itself. The way that Paul put it in his letter to the Romans, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I say I don't want to do are the very things that I can't help myself from doing over and over again, giving in to these appetites. I say that I, you know, I want to uh, exercise uh, while I've got this time in quarantine, but instead I'm sitting around um, gorging myself on, <laughs> on chocolate or all these things that are bad for me. I really should get organized and take the time to do these things that I want to do. But instead, uh, I just want to sit on the couch and watch the uh, three million hours of the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the extended version. Uh, That's the problem. It goes back to to the very beginning. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I shouldn't do, I know I shouldn't do. Those are the things that I do. And that's the crux of the great story. God says, I am going to address this problem. And he prophetically makes a promise, a covenant um, to do so. And that's the great story. It begins with a person named Abraham who becomes a people. The tribes of Israel and the Hebrew people, freed from their bondage, taken on a journey through the wilderness, to the promised land. And right there is a microcosm of the great story. Next time, the story continues where the people now become a nation. And in the next section of the great story, we talk about the historical books and the nation of Israel. And so until then, I hope you're doing well. I hope that during your time of quarantine, you can actually get a few things done that you're supposed to get done. I hope that you can uh, say no to some of the things that may be distracting you and uh, find some productive time and maybe even wait in and read some of these stories for yourself. You are always welcome to follow along on the chapter a day, every weekday. Uh, TomBanderworld.com would love to have you along. Feel free to post your own thoughts. Uh, If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact me. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, let me leave you, my friends, with this blessing. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of the sand. Have a great week.